Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. There were four legs to the state's case against Pablo Velez Jr. First and foremost, his gold Cadillac was the getaway car for the shooters. Next, his girlfriend told the jury that Pablo was not at her house on the night of the murder and that she felt that he wanted her to lie for him. Then, Detective King completed a drive test to prove that Pablo could have made it to the perfect rack in time to participate in the murder. And lastly, and most devastating, Claudia's idea of Pablo as the second gunman, which was presented to the jury not through her own testimony, but through Detective Swainson's. He testified that he was in the room when Claudia gave a beautiful, positive, and perfect idea of Pablo. Today, I'm here to tell you that if this is all the state has, then there is no case against Pablo Velez. This is Season 11, Episode 3, Crooked Cops. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. I told you in this week's follow-up that there's no question that it was in fact Pablo's gold Cadillac that the shooters fled in on the night of the murder. And I'll reiterate that again. It was definitely Pablo's car, but Pablo wasn't in it. Pablo's story is that he sold his car to a guy who lived down the street from him shortly before the murder. But there's a little more to the story. Pablo actually received a phone call from the person that he sold the car to on the morning of the murder. I had a, uh, I had a 1998 uh, Cadillac Gazelle that I, uh, 
I didn't want any more, so I ended up selling it to uh, one of my neighbors. And when I say neighbors, I mean like seven, eight houses down from me on the same street. And, um, you know, I, I sold it to him, and I told him we'd take care of the title, you know, when I would get back in town and I had time to do it. And uh, I figured, you know, it wasn't going to be no big deal. And uh, on that particular week, I left me and one of my trainees that I was training. We left for the week. We went to, and we went everywhere. We went to Louisiana, uh, Mississippi. We went everywhere. And uh, up into Shreveport, Louisiana from Boatport, Mississippi. And uh, on our way to Odessa on uh, on Wednesday, uh, the 14th of July. And uh, I ended up having a, a gas leak in the generator that the truck, that the 18-wheeler had. So uh, we had a stop in Weatherford, Texas. And I called my dispatcher, told him I had a gas leak uh, and I couldn't continue to Odessa. So he got with one of the other drivers and that was already in Odessa coming back to Houston and we met up at a at a Lowe's truck stop there in Weatherford and we swapped loads. Trailers, we swapped trailers mm-hmm. and uh, I ended up taking his trailer uh back to Houston and he ended up taking the one I was hauling back to Odessa. And uh we got into Houston around after midnight from uh, Weatherford, which is outside of Dallas. And got into uh, Houston, uh, stopped at a truck stop because I had my trainee with me, so we had to stop and wait for his wife to pick him up. And uh, she picked him up. I went home to my mom's house, and uh, I showered. Uh, My little brothers were there. Uh, I ate a bowl of cereal. Still remember to this day, there were some Lucky Charms. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I, uh, my Jaguar that I had at that time was flat. So I ended up going to uh, a next girlfriend's house of mine in the 18 wheeler on the east side of town. I live on the north side of town. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I drove to her house in the 18 wheeler, which is about, I don't know, 30 minutes, 30 minutes away. And, um, I stayed there. I got to her house around, I don't know, maybe 2.45 in the morning, 3 in the morning, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And I stayed talking with her for about uh, almost two hours, hour and a half, maybe two hours. And um talked for a little while and came back home. And when I came home, uh, I'm, I'm in the 18 wheeler, so I have to take big streets to get to my house. And um, so the big street that I had to take, the guy I sold the car to, he lived on the corner of 14th Street. Mm-hmm. And I live on the corner of 15th Street. Same cross street, though. Okay. So so when I'm coming down 14th Street, I make a right on my street. Well, he gives me a call, and he's like, hey, what's the, what are you doing? Are you just now getting in town? And I'm like, yeah, just getting in. And uh, he told me, he goes, he goes, hey, I need you to uh, report the car stolen. And I'm like, why? What happened? 
and he's like, oh, it ain't no, uh, uh, he said, it ain't nothing, no big deal. He said, uh, just uh, report the car stolen. And I'm like, all right. So now remember, it's five something in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, all right, I'll report it stolen. So as I'm pulling up to my house, I call him back and I tell him, I said, hey, I said, uh, I'm fixing to go to sleep. I said, I'll do it in the morning when I get up, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not fixing away. I'm not fixing away all morning, you know, just because they stole the car. I'm not fixing to wait there. You know, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, the cops ain't going to come over here right now just because they stole the car. Right. You know? And uh, I said, man, I'm going to, I'll do it in the morning when I get up. He said, all right. So, uh, anyway, I go home, go to sleep. Next morning, uh, he calls me back and he's like, hey, uh, did you report the car stolen? I said, no, nah, not yet. I'm fixing to do it. And he's like, no, nah, well, don't worry about it. He said, uh, it wasn't no big deal anyway. And I'm like, well, what happened? And he never told me what happened. He just said it wasn't no big deal. So when he told me that, when he told me, you know, don't worry about it, it wasn't no big deal. Well, in my mind, I figured, well, hell, it ain't no big deal. Pablo says that the man he sold the car to was a guy by the name of Ron Strandberg. Have a listen to what Adrian Payan, the surviving victim, told the district attorney in 2017. Okay, so let's kind of break this down. So on Monday, you go to the perfect rack, and that's when you're there with Monica, right? Mm-hmm. All right, and then you go to the bathroom, and then that's whenever you get beat up, mm-hmm. right? And then, so who actually beats you up? Shorty, Jason, and Ron was just holding Monica at the door. All right, and so did you know Shorty, Jason, and Ron Strandberg before that day? I don't know them like that, I just know of them. So here we have a connection between the car and the three people that Adrian has named as his attackers. According to Adrian, Ron Strandberg was one of the three men who had attacked him on the Monday before the shooting. He names Jason Woolley, Richard Shorty Cisneros, and Ron Strandberg. Everything seems to fit together nicely, but did Pablo actually sell his car to Ron? According to Ron, that never happened. Here he is speaking on the subject with a pair of HPD detectives who were reinvestigating the case in 2017. He's trying to say that I that, that I bought that car from him. So he's accusing you. Yeah, he's accusing me. I ain't never had no Cadillac. Okay, like, well, let's get that right now. Did you ever buy a vehicle from uh, Pablo? Never. Not even under the, the, the radar cash only deal, no title change, never. nothing? Never drove a Cadillac. Hmm. But you owned the Cadillac at some point, though, right? No. I, I never drove a Cadillac. Did you know somebody who owned a Cadillac that associated yourself with? Uh, I know a bunch of people who own Cadillacs that I associate myself with. A lot of people drive Cadillacs, like Cadillac Escalades. Um, I'm talking about Fleetwoods. Fleetwoods. You know, them, you mm-hmm. know. And that's that's a popular car in Houston. People with them swangers on it. And, you mm-hmm. know, oh, yeah. well, but you never owned, you, you say you never owned a Cadillac. I never owned a Cadillac. You've ever borrowed a Cadillac and driven around because you've been seen in one at any time? No. Uh, not even possible. Nope. No girlfriends that had one? No. Uh, buddies that would pick you up and take you to drink beer in one, and you know they leave and drop you off in it? And they, nothing like that? No, sir. So what you drove to the perfect rack? 
I, I had a cutlass, an 86 cutlass. Okay. So I drove. It was white, it had a blue top. Did you ever ask to borrow someone's Cadillac? Never. Never. Do you still own the cutlass? No. Okay. That That's true, there is a cutlass. Mm -hmm. I discovered that already. Um, okay, so your word is now that, that there's no Cadillac tied to you. You never bought one from Pablo. Did he ever Did he ever offer to sell it to you? You just said no, nothing like that? No. Okay. So herein lies the dilemma. Pablo says that he sold the caddy to Ron shortly before the murder, and Ron says, number one, that's not true, but also that he has never owned a Cadillac, has never borrowed a Cadillac, has never driven a Cadillac, and has actually never even ridden in a Cadillac. Somebody's lying. If only there had been some kind of evidence available to Detective Swainson and King to figure out who it was. Right after the break. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pablo's ex-girlfriend confirms to police and in court that Pablo had told her that he had bought a Cadillac and he had sold it to someone, and also that he hadn't done the paperwork on it. She also testified that she had never seen him driving the Caddy, and actually that she had never seen it at all. She says that he bought it and sold it while they were broken up over the summer. The problem for Pablo is that there is some discrepancy between the two of them as to when they started talking and getting back together again. If Anel, the ex-girlfriend, is right on her dates, then her testimony really doesn't help Pablo. She says that her first contact after the breakup was on July 28th, two weeks after the murder. So if Pablo had sold the car before then, he could have still owned it at the same time of the murder. But fortunately for Pablo, Ron left a paper trail. The sad part about what I'm about to tell you is that this information was presented at trial and apparently completely ignored by the jury, which goes to show you just how powerful Swainson's testimony about Claudia's ID really was. The perfect, positive, beautiful ID testimony seems to have, pun intended, trumped the rest of the evidence. At trial, Pablo's defense presented a receipt from E-Race Performance Car Stereos and Alarms as evidence. The receipt is dated July 8, 2004, seven days before the shooting. The customer's name is listed as Ron on the receipt, and the car that had the work done was a 1998 gold Cadillac DeVille. Ron paid E-Race $60 to have a stereo installed in the caddy. 
All right, I know what you're thinking. So what? They found a receipt from some dude named Ron. That's hardly a bombshell. And you're right, it's not. Which is why Pablo's attorney put the owner of the shop, Abraham Song, on the stand at trial. At this point in the transcript, McLean had just entered the receipt in his evidence. Quote, McLean, do you know a person named Ron Strandberg? Song, yes. In your business? Yes. Okay, do you know him as a customer or personally? A customer. Okay, and so back on July 8th, 2004, did you do anything to a vehicle he brought into your shop? Yes. What'd you do? He brought in a radio and I had to install it for him. What kind of radio was it? I'm really not sure. Is it written on the front of the receipt? No. McLean here shows him the receipt again. And then back into the testimony. McLean. Do you remember or have a recollection of what kind of radio it was? I think it was a Pioneer radio. Was it a K-17? Yes. Okay, what is that? It's a model number of a radio. That's a model number. Yeah. Okay, and what kind of car did you put this into? It's a Cadillac DeVille. What color? Gold. Okay, gold. And did you... Was it a 1998 Cadillac DeVille? Right. Okay, Was, do you know Pablo Velez when you see him? Yes. Okay, is he a customer of yours too? Yes, he is. In cross, Bogart tries to muddy the waters. She asked Mr. Song if he went to school with Pablo or knew him as a friend, but she struck out. Abraham only knew him from having worked on him as cars, he says, about once a year or so. Then she asks how he remembers that the car was a gold Cadillac, which is pretty obvious. It says it right on the receipt. But Song says that he remembers him having that car. And this is where Bogart tries to do a little damage. And it must have worked to cloud the situation in the eyes of the jury since they still convicted Pablo. So Song says, quote, I remember him having it as a car. And then Bogart says, Pablo? And then Song says, uh-huh. And then tries to explain, but all he gets out is, and then after that, the... And then Bogart cuts him off and passes the witness. She wouldn't let him finish saying that after Pablo, Ron owned the car. But McLean jumps right back in on redirect. Quote, There's no dispute that Ron Strandberg brought it in on that day. Song's reply, No, there is no dispute. McLean, And you know Ron Strandberg when you see him, correct? Song, Right. For my money, we can put the car argument to rest. We have documentation and direct testimony from the shop owner that on July 8th, seven days before the murder, that car belonged to Ron Strandberg, and he was having a stereo installed in it. Let's think about who we believe here. Pablo says that he sold the car to Ron. Ron claims to never have even ridden in a Cadillac in his entire life, much less owned one. Then we have Pablo's ex-girlfriend that says he told her about selling the car when they first started talking again which Pablo says was on the night of the murder, and she says was two weeks later. Let's move on to the second two legs of the state's case. First, we have Detective King's drive test, which we already know means nothing. He drove a route that Pablo never even said that he took. But then there's the ex-girlfriend Anel's testimony. This one was a big deal and had a double effect on the outcome of trial, triple really. She failed to alibi Pablo, and that's thing one, And she said that she thought he was trying to get her to lie for him. That's two. And the third is in regards to what I just mentioned about the car. If Pablo's right, and he was at Anel's on the night of the murder, and that's when he told her about selling the car, 
then that's just the icing on the cake. But here's the thing. There's really no way to prove or disprove whether or not Pablo was at Anel's house on that night. Well, technically the mooring of the murder. But I can share with you this. At trial, Anel testified that she and Pablo had been broken up for about three months in the summer of 2004. She also testified that she didn't talk to him at all until they were getting back together. From the transcript, quote, Bogar, during that three-month period that you all were broken up, did you ever talk? Anel, no. And did you start talking again sometime in July? Anel, by the end of July. Bogar, do you remember what date? Anel, like the 29th, something like that. And here comes the monkey wrench in her memory of the dates. After Pablo was convicted, his lawyers were able to obtain a copy of his phone records. And guess what they found? A 29-minute phone call from Pablo to Anel on July 13th, the day before the murder. Now, I'm not here to tell you that this seals the deal or anything, but it's certainly a piece of the puzzle. Anel says that they never talked before they started to try to get back together. Pablo says that they were trying to get back together on the night of the murder, and now we have phone records proving that they were at least talking on the day before. Does it seem reasonable that if Pablo wanted to get back together and he talked to her on the phone for a half hour the day before that he might go to her house to continue the conversation when he got home? Just like he said he did? It sounds reasonable to me. It's not definitive, but it is most certainly reasonable. There are a few other elements of the state's case that we haven't mentioned yet, frankly because they're absurd. Most of them revolve around the three men identified by Claudia and Adrian after the trial. We're going to get into each of these three suspects in future episodes, but you should at least know this. The judge in the case would not allow Pablo's defense to present Strandberg or Shorty Cisneros as alternate suspects. So it's fair to say that that was another element of the state's case. They convinced the judge to handcuff the defense. We also have the fact that when Adrian testified, he actually told the jury that he had seen Pablo in the club earlier that night, around 10 or 11 o'clock. And of course, cell phone evidence that's available now, his truck log, and his trainee all prove that that statement is absolutely false. It cannot be true. And Adrian also testified that he didn't think the shooting had anything to do with the Monday night fight, which is not what he had originally told police, it's not what Claudia told police, and it's not what he said in 2017. But all of that worked against Pablo. The best thing that he had going for him was the receipt that proved Ron Strandberg was actually in possession of the gold Cadillac at the time of the murder. But good old Detective King fought back hard against that, telling the jury that no one had ever mentioned Ron's name in the course of this investigation. I repeat that, he said to the jury, no one had ever mentioned Ron Strandberg's name in the course of the investigation. I'm going to get into all the details of this later, but for now I want to read to you a direct quote out of his HPD offense report. Quote, During the course of this investigation, officers Swainson and King have repeatedly heard that Shorty, Ron, and Jason were responsible for the shooting that took place at the perfect rack. End quote. Must have slipped his mind. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The final and most devastating leg of the state's case against Pablo was Claudia's ID. But remember, when she testified, she only said that when she was shown a photo array of headshots, she had told Detective King that Pablo's picture looked like the guy. She never said that it was him. In fact, when she was asked at trial if she could identify the shooter in the courtroom, she very clearly said that Pablo was not the man that she saw. But her old friend Detective Swainson stepped up to the plate next and cleared the bases. He told the jury a few things. Number one, that he was in the room when Claudia ID'd Pablo. And number two, she made a positive, perfect, beautiful ID. And really, who's not going to believe a cop? Things began to fall apart for the state when Pablo's appellate attorney gained access to Detective King's handwritten notebook, something that had been withheld from the defense at trial. Now remember back in season 10 when I said it looked like HBD, Swainson specifically in that case, was sanitizing their reports? meaning that they would talk to a witness, they wouldn't record it, and they didn't provide any notes. Then they would type information into their reports that fits the case just a little too perfectly, which is what got my attention. As if no one ever gave them any exculpatory information, ever. Well, here's the proof that that's exactly how they operated. The official HPD offense report, the one that was made available to the defense at trial, says that when Claudia ID'd Pablo in the photo array, She said, quote, he looks like him. Now, even that isn't a perfect, positive, and beautiful ID, but it's pretty definitive. However, that's not all she said. In Detective King's handwritten notes, we find out what she actually said. This is from his own notes. Quote, showed her array with Pablo Velez for blue shirt based on her description. Points at number five. Quote, he looks like him but guy in blue shirt had lighter hair, end quote. Does that sound like a perfect, positive, beautiful ID to you? It looks like him, but the shooter had lighter hair. She's clearly saying that he's not the shooter. Of course it doesn't sound perfect, positive, or beautiful. She essentially told King it wasn't him. It just looked like him. But the shooter had lighter hair than the guy in the photo, who we now know was Pablo. The entire situation was a complete sham. King's report says that he included Pablo in the photo array, quote, based on Claudia's description of the blue shirt shooter. But that's not true either. Claudia described the shooter as 5'3 to 5'4 on the morning of the murder. Then in King's notes, we see that a week later... When she looked at the lineup, she told him that the blue shirt shooter was about 5'6". She says shorter than Wooly, who was 5'10", and, quote, a little chunky. Pablo was 6' tall. He didn't match the description at all, other than the fact that he happened to be a Hispanic male. But King's report looks great. She gave a description. He put Pablo in a photo array based on that description. And she said he looks like him. 
At Pablo's habeas hearing, King testified and explained some things. He testified that his report was, quote, inaccurate, and that the real reason Pablo was in the lineup was because the registration on the gold Cadillac came back to him. He also admits that he knew Pablo was six foot tall and didn't fit the description when he put him in the array. In fact, through his testimony, we learned that King and Swainson actually took the time to have Pablo do an in-person video lineup. The entire purpose was so that Claudia would have more than just a headshot to look at. She could see the height and builds of the suspects as well, which was a smart move. But unfortunately for Pablo, they decided not to show the video to Claudia. And the hits just keep coming. Not only did Pablo not fit the description, and Claudia said that the shooter had lighter hair than him, beyond that, Detective King knew who the actual second shooter was. From the transcript. Quote, And you knew there was an alternate suspect named Shorty Cisneros, right? King, yes. That multiple people were naming him in connection with this crime? Yes. And you knew that he matched the height of the individual? Yes. Right? Same height, right? Yes. And was talked about by everybody being there that night? King, that's right. And you never interviewed the guy? King, I did not. Let's not forget that it wasn't just King that perpetrated this conspiracy against Pablo. Remember, Roy Swainson testified, under oath, at a murder trial that Claudia made a perfect, positive, and beautiful ID of Pablo. Now, do any of you think that maybe he just made a little whoopsie-daisy here and he just got confused? I mean, his testimony was very clear. He must have been confused. He was asked directly if he was in the room when Claudia made the ID, and he confirmed that yes, he was. He was asked if it was a positive ID. He said it was. He was asked to describe the ID, and I swear to God, I can't even say it again, but you know how he described it. And then Bogart tripled down and asked him if the ID could be described as tentative. Nope, no way. It was beautiful. Here's Detective King's testimony at Pablo's habeas hearing. Quote, Question. Okay, and Officer Swainton was with you when you showed Claudia the photo array. King. He was, I think he was talking to Adrian in the next room, in the room over. Okay. King. Kitchen or something. He wasn't with you when she picked him out? He was not in my presence. Okay, would he have heard her pick him out, or you don't think so? I don't know. But he was in another room. King. Yeah. Swainson wasn't even in the fucking room. His entire testimony to put a man in prison for murder was a complete and total fabrication. We found out it was Swainson that in trial he had said that he was in the room when they interviewed uh, Claudia, which is the main witness. Mm-hmm. And that he had it, that they had interviewed her, and that uh, she pointed out to my picture, and that it was a positive ID, and that uh, there was no doubt in, in her mind 
And then when I went back to try, when I went back to court in 2017, Detective King testified that Swainson was never even in the room when Claudia pointed to the picture. And so he had died, you know, in trial the first time. And uh, it, that was not a, 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 he looks like him. They used, he looks like him as a positive idea. And Detective King admitted that they shouldn't have even investigated me because I did not fit the description that she gave him. Mm-hmm. You know, she described the shooter as 5'4", 5'6", 140, 160 pounds. I'm 6'4", tall, 240 pounds at that time. You know, a big difference. But they he withheld a Detective King instead of putting everything in the report, he left out what Claudia had said. Um, he had said that Claudia said he looks like him, end quote. And when we went to court in seven, 2017, uh, we got his uh, notes and his paperwork, and what she actually said was he looks like him, but the blue shirt shooter has lighter hair. So... She was telling him that I just looked like the person, but I wasn't the person. And, you know, it was, I don't know, big old mess. Do you, when you look at your trial and, and how you were you were convicted, do you blame those, those officers or uh, that false testimony, is called what it is, about what she had said in her identification for your conviction? Yeah, of course. I mean... If they would have just, if they would have just took the time to investigate properly, they would have had the the real people that did it, you know. And they they didn't. They did a poor job. They lied, and you know it it, it ended with you know sending an innocent person to prison, you know, for doing a poor job. And you know, it just they ruined everything, man. They they ruined everything. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
to become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.